My name is Seth Porges. I'm co-director and producer of Class Action Park on HBO Max. I'm Chris Charles Scott. I'm co-director of Class Action Park on HBO Max. From a small town, but doing big things. There's nothing in the world like Action Park. Baby, let me take you. The story of Action Park is a true crime story. As you entered the park, you saw this thing, and you're like, this is real. The engineering behind this, if there was any engineering, was just nuts. Build it higher, make it faster. People control the action. Combine that with liquor and anything goes. There were no rules. For a lot of kids, that was heaven. And if you couldn't swim well, yikes. I don't think you can understand a place like Action Park if you don't understand the kind of minds that built it. A lot of people wish they could ignore rules. Gene actually did that. Nobody would give him insurance, so he created his own insurance company and then insured himself. It did bring sometimes a criminal element. I don't know how many people died at Action Park, but it wasn't just one person. Electrocuted. Decapitated. Fractured vertebrae. Impaled on the bowl. Had a heart attack. Nobody should ever be the second person to die in a wave pool. Close the wave pool. The action never That is the trailer for the HBO Max documentary, Class Action Park. And this is Factual America. Factual America is produced by Alamo Pictures, a production company specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for an international audience. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood, and every week we look at America through the lens of documentary filmmaking by interviewing filmmakers and experts on the American experience. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, to find out where you can see our films, and to connect with our team. Action Park in Vernon, New Jersey was straight out of a Gen X teenager's dream, the R-rated version of a John Hughes film. Or as Jason Bailey at the New York Times puts it, a rule-free stew of dangerous rides, teen guests, teen employees, raging hormones, 80s-style machismo, and booze. But for all the nostalgia, the place comes with bad memories for those whose loved ones were seriously injured and in some cases killed by the reckless actions of Gene Mulvihill, the fallen Wall Street mogul who owned and ran the park. Seth Porges and Chris Charles Scott, the co-directors of Class Action Park, brilliantly capture both the time and place, Northern New Jersey in the 1980s and 90s, that will never be repeated. And many would say, thank God for that. We caught up recently with Seth and Chris from their homes in upstate New York and Las Vegas, Nevada. Seth Porges and Chris Charles Scott. Welcome to Factual America. Seth, how are things? Things are great. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, you're coming to us from upstate New York, is that right? Absolutely. Excellent. Right across the pond. Just across the pond. <laughs> just across. Just across. Chris, you're a little further away. How are you? Hi, I am out west in lovely, fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. Yeah, it's a, it's a major league franchise heaven right now, isn't it? You've got the Raiders. You've got all kinds we, of things going on. We had our first home game on Monday. Broke records for Monday Night Football uh, viewership, 
Vegas is now a major league town. It's, uh, it's amazing. So again, welcome to Factual America. The film is Class Action Park, which Jason Bailey, New York Times, well, describing the amusement park that this film's about, is described as a no-rules bacchanal of water slides and broken bones. Uh, thanks for again coming on to the podcast and helping me relive my misspent youth, I, I think. Uh, I'm not, still not sure after having seen this, but HBO Max... You premiered at number one. I think you're still there or just about. Who um, knows? Up, it, we're up there. <laughs> you're up there. Up. Rave reviews, 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, do we have international distribution yet? Uh, HBO Max is, has partnerships with various streaming services around the world. So we're not sure of the exact details, but it's popping up all over now. Okay. All right. So... Seth, I mean, I'm going to cut right to the chase. Uh, besides you and Chris being maybe the best director since Scorsese, why do you think this film is, is doing so well? <laughs> uh, it, it's all about striking a nerve at this time. You know, it, it's, this is a movie that is about this, this endless battle within us between the need for immediate satisfaction and fun and a feeling of invulnerability and immunity and invincibility that a lot of people have versus the forces of common sense and safety <laughs> and staying alive. And it's not hard to understand how that might apply to things that we're all sort of dealing with right now. And I think that's why it really struck a nerve. Uh, that's interesting. It's a very interesting take on that. Uh, I mean, Chris, so for those who haven't uh, had a chance to see it, and I highly, highly recommend you watch this film. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Um, can you maybe give us a little synopsis of what, what act uh, Class Action Park is about? Yeah, take that one. <laughs> okay, Chris. Okay. Uh, Class Action Park is, is a documentary about Action Park. Action Park was a, an amusement park in northern New Jersey from 1978 to 1996 that earned, an, and it really did earn this reputation, as being the most insane, most chaotic, most anarchic, most run by teenagers, most drunken, most craziest amusement park that ever existed, and indeed oftentimes the most dangerous amusement park that ever existed. But... Despite, or actually as it happens, because of this reputation, people did not stay away. Rather, they flock there to experience the danger for themselves. Yeah. Okay, so what it, I mean, it was these crazy death-not-defying rides that were the main attraction. Is, isn't that right? That's right. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, we, when we bring these films on, we try not, you know, spoiler alerts, we try not to, uh, uh, we don't, go through the whole film. We don't give things away, uh, but, uh, you know, it gives people's a little tasters. I think one of the, I guess the ride that people would have seen when they first got to the park was something called the cannonball loop. And every time I see a picture of this thing, I don't know. I, I, I it's maybe it's nervous. It scrambles laughter. your brain. It scrambles, it scrambles your brain. It scrambles your brain. I burst out laughing brain. my head off. And then yeah. I just think this is absolutely mad, but your brain can't process it. It's like looking at a math <laughs> equation. That doesn't make sense. Like your brain just can't process it. <laughs> uh, so we have a little clip here that talks about uh, the cannonball loop. So would you uh, maybe want to set that up for us? Uh, Chris, Seth? it's all you. Oh, Chris, okay, Chris, Chris, this is all you. Okay, Chris. Cannonball loop. It's the first thing you see when you actually enter the park. Yeah. It was a myth that this thing was actually in existence. But when you go to the park and you enter the gates, you see this, <clears throat> this contraption that looks like it's from a Bugs Bunny, Bunny cartoon. It, it's, it's Wally Coyote type of thing. <laughs> and 
And the thing actually was in use. There's footage of people yeah. actually going down this slide. And Chris, you got to say what it is, of course. It's an enclosed tube water slide that somehow goes into a full vertical 360-degree <laughs> loop like a roller coaster would. And you'd see people go in and you'd see them sometimes come out. They wouldn't always make it out, but they'd come out and they'd be facing a totally different direction. Uh, they'd be bloody, beaten, battered. It was... Um, it, it, it strains the imagination to contemplate the idea that this should be an amusement park ride. With that uh, set up, let's, uh, let's listen. And uh, for some of our listeners who are actually viewers as well on YouTube, uh, let's go to that clip. One of the first things you saw when you walked into Action Park was the infamous cannonball loop, which for years, it was, it was like a myth that the thing had ever been open. Cannonball loop was an enclosed tube water slide and you would climb to the top of a series of stairs and you would ride down the enclosed tube and at the very end, the tube would go into a huge loop. I mean, you looked at the thing and it, and it looked like it was something out of like a Bugs Bunny or a Roadrunner cartoon where they just made a loop and said, yeah, there's our ride. Some lunatic clearly just was like, build me a slide that's like that. And then they didn't consult anybody who had a background in engineering. Okay, so how does, how does something like that even... I mean, I, th I can imagine how they get designed. Uh, it sounds like some, someone on drugs or is drunk did something. But uh, how did these things get designed and built? Yeah, so, so rides at Action Park, and this was clearly the most visually insane ride, but it wasn't the most dangerous, and it wasn't in many ways the craziest ride at the park. Almost every ride at Action Park kind of makes you scratch your head a little, like what, what were they thinking? And the important thing to understand is the context of the time. This park opened in 1978. It was either the third or fourth modern water park the country had ever seen. You had Wet and Wild, you had Schlitterbahn, you had Disney's River Country, and then you had Action Park. So nobody knew what a water park was. They were inventing these rides basically in real time, most of them built by non-engineers, many of them designed by young staff members, many of them actually designed by the owner himself. Uh, the Cannibal Loop in particular, the idea came about when the owner of the park literally just drew a circle on a cocktail napkin, hired some local welders to put it together, and then their method of testing it wasn't, we're going to use computer models, we're going to hire a physicist, none of that. Their method of testing was, we're going to throw some test dummies down and see what happens to them. They came out dismembered, missing head, so they started tweaking angle, water pressure, until those dummies were coming out more or less intact. So next stage, of course, is to send some humans down there. Are they going to go hire some test pilot? No, no, no. They're going to literally wave $100 bills in there, and any of the teenage, I'm talking 14, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, gutsy enough who wanted a hundred bucks in their pocket would volunteer to go down this thing and just kind of see what happened. Uh, as it happens though, only the older kids got paid hundred dollars. I was told the younger kids got 50. Oh, okay. Well, you know, uh, you get paid for experience. I think we actually have a short clip that talks shows that crash testing that was going on. Uh, it's animated. Um, probably fortunately we don't have actual footage to be honest, but uh, here we go. Let's uh, let's uh, watch or listen to that uh, clip about testing the uh, cannonball loop. The first couple people that came in came out, and their mouths were all bloody. And that was before they had put sufficient padding in the top. There was a little bit, so they sent a couple other people down. And when those people came down, they came down with lacerations. They couldn't figure out why these people had lacerations from a giant loop. Then they took the loop apart and they found teeth stuck in the padding from the first couple people that went down the slide and they had gotten their teeth knocked out. 
And these other people were just going up and ripping into it. I mean, I, I don't know if, I, I don't even think I can say anything to follow that up. I mean, I think it says, really stands on its own. Uh, Chris, did you ever have anything like Action Park when you were growing up? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I, I grew up in a little small town on the border of Texas and Louisiana, population 533. We did not have a janky water park like Action yeah. Park, but we did have those sort of thrills that Action Park was trying to mimic. There were cliff jumps that we jumped off of into this mm. this pool of sulfur and water, and it reeked, and our bodies reeked. I'm surprised we're not all terminally ill because of that. We went and we rode our bikes and had summer days filled with adventure and shenanigans, and our parents did not know where we were mm -hmm. or what we were up to. We just had one rule, is, is you don't play in your school clothes. That was it. If you came home alive, <laughs> you weren't in school clothes. Yeah. Uh, that was all that mattered. And so you asked earlier, was this movie struck in a court? It struck in a court because the people who grew up in the 80s, um, like Seth and I, um, and experiencing this, this adventure, these 1980s, like, Stand By Me, the Goonies. Goonies. Yeah. yeah. That, that, that actually lived those types of lifestyles. We are hearkening back to this era where everything seems awesome and carefree and responsibility-free. And in a time where we're having to quarantine and self-distance and... It, it, it just strikes a, a, this beautiful uh, feeling of nostalgia. But then again, there's this, there's this toxic nostalgia that's involved. There's a darkness, in yeah, there's a darkness underneath all that. And, yeah. I think, um, and I think that that's a lot of, without spoiling too much, what our movie is, is really about is kind of contextualizing that nostalgia within the reality of it and saying that, you know, a lot of people who look back at these experiences, they might laugh about them, they might joke about them, they might be very mm -hmm. fond of their own childhoods. To some degree, they know a lot of the things they did were totally messed up and it's an absolute miracle they are still alive. Mm -hmm. You know, these, these movies, these 1980s movies that really embody the spirit or even modern takes on them, like, you know, Stranger Things, shows like that. Right. There, right. There's always this underlying darkness and this underlying sense that the kids are on their own, that there's nobody they can turn to for help. The parents aren't there. The authority figures aren't there. And I think younger kids today don't realize that that comes from a reality, that comes from a truth, that comes from a real sense of being on your own that a lot of these kids had. Yeah. I mean, this is, is kind of getting to issues that I, thought, I think we're definitely going to be heading towards, but we might as well talk about them now. I mean, this is... Uh, I'm older than you guys, but I think we might all be Gen Xers here, but we're right on, some of you might be on the border, I don't know, but uh, this is, we are the last generations to have this sort of upbringing. Um, so are we, is it all sort of rose-colored glasses that we're looking back on this as something that was, that really wasn't as maybe, or we shouldn't be as nostalgic as, as maybe we are, uh, or are or, 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 or new generations missing out on something at the same time? 
I think the people who experience it and are nostalgic for it are very aware of the underlying darkness of it all. I think where it gets lost is when those people take their nostalgia and they turn it into a movie or a TV show or a memoir or just telling a story with their buddies at a party, uh, they tend to gloss over the darkness while deep inside they know it to be true. And there's almost a code in the way people, Gen Xers in particular, speak of these experiences Mm -hmm. uh, where laughter sort and, and a sense of a shrug almost shields what they all know is is a really terrifying upbringing and i think what we want to do is sort of translate that code and make it evident to people who weren't aware we can't believe this was real what was really going on there i I think that's a good point i mean the thought that came to me when i was driving over here is i i kind of want to show this to my teenage kids just so they can uh uh i mean in some ways, it, is, it wasn't my upbringing because I, I wasn't a teenage guy uh, running a running a, a dodgy amusement park and <laughs> drunk off my ass. But I mean, but there was I mean, but this was I don't think it's all that far off from a lot of things that were happening. I mean, I've, I've been to Schlitterbahn. I remember what we were all trying to get yeah. to when we were, we were going there. Um, so I think it's I think you captured extremely well this whole sort of ethos milieu that was. Gen X youth, you know. Um, I mean, you know, they've had their own set of problems. Oh, and, and they've had some recent ones. I mean, recent ones, yeah. Uh, which it's make a- that ride that that's almost straight with the cannonball loop, isn't it? That one they tried to build in Kansas City, I think. Yeah, killed- well, they killed the kid, got decapitated. Yeah. And uh, what, what drove that, it's really interesting because it's not that dissimilar to what drove a lot of the erratic ride designs at Action Park with tragic effect in both cases. The the Schlitterbahn accident happened because the management of the park was desperate to be featured to, to kind of hold some wor- sort of world record for tallest, steepest, fastest, something like that, but also to be featured on a TV show about extreme water rides, extreme water parks. And they sort of pushed it aside the common sense and the design and the safety that was required uh, to do that effectively. And Action Park was sort of the same way where the priority was on creating these memorable, insane, extremely fun experiences. And the, everything else was just sort of viewed as red tape. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Chris, I getting back to this point about what, you know, Action Park, it wasn't just the rides, though. It's, uh, it's other things, isn't it? It's booze, it's hormones, it's no adults. I mean, that's, that was what lured all of, uh, of the New York City metro area to, to northern New Jersey, isn't it? It was. And the ads, they constantly pumped radio ads into the New York City and the Newark area. You have to think, these are kids that are hearing these ads and and on the radio station that these ads are being played in your Queens, in your Bronx, Brooklyn, before it was uh, uh, gentrified. Places are, are people of color. Um, working class people, mm-hmm. they don't have a house in Delaware. They don't have a house on the Jersey Shore. They have Action Park. And so a lot of these inexperienced swimmers come in to Action Park, maybe get a little boozed up, have this, 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 this macho guy mentality, and just like Seth said in our movie, it's like the purge. <laughs> these people come out yeah. and their wildest instincts yeah. are are being triggered at this park and there's no one there to tell them no. And yeah. So- and the f- I'm sorry, Chris. Go, no, on. go ahead. No, no, no. Well, what, what Chris is doing, and, and I think there's this innate 
fantasy that kids have of the amusement park without rules. This isn't Pinocchio with Pleasure Island. This is what Westworld is about. This is what Jurassic Park is about. Like this is a trope, a staple of fiction. Mm -hmm. This idea that you can go to an amusement park and do whatever you want. And that's what Action Park was. And it brought, it was this release valve of tension and pressure and everything. It was in a place where the atmosphere from the moment you were on the ground, you knew that the rules of society, the rules of God and man, the rules of the law just did not apply here. And what does that do when you're a 14 or 15 year old kid who already feels a little invulnerable, who already feels a little invincible and is suddenly being handed beers on top of it. Like it just is this mix that, that really just added up. Yeah. I mean, are there any places like this anymore? (laughs) <laughs> not, not amusement parks is a thing. Here's the thing. Like action park wasn't unique in the sense that you could do these dangerous experiences. Yeah. The reason I, one reason this movie struck a chord is because kids were already doing this. If you didn't grow up in the Jersey area and go to action park, you might've been making stupid BMX ramps or skateboard yeah. ramps that were yeah. going to kill somebody or jumping into quarries or cliffs, whatever it's going to be yeah. what Chris was talking about before yeah. action park was a gated amusement park and had the veneer of safety of like a Disney world as a result of it. When it was anything but. So these experiences, they exist to this day if you are an enterprising latchkey kid. And of course, there are many fewer enterprising latchkey kids today than there were in the 1980s because mm. of smartphones, because of parenting tactics changing, because yeah. the world has changed in so many yeah. ways. But it wasn't just the kids. I mean, you mentioned in the, in the film, uh, we had Waterworld. <laughs> Amazing, you've got a music park that's on either side of like a major highway. Highway, a know, major highway running runs, right through the middle. Runs right through it, not with like safety fencing or whatever. I mean, it just, and there was also Motor World, which was basically legalized drunk driving, wasn't it? It was drunk driving the ride is what it was. Uh, yeah. yeah, and it, and uh, one of my favorite lines in the movie is when a former employee says, the design was flawed because the racing cars are right next to the beer tent. And <laughs> that's exactly what it was. It was, and these weren't, go-karts like you'd find at like a typical amusement park these were full-on formula one style racing cars lola brand racing cars that could go upwards of 60 miles per hour and people would just ignore the track they drive them off the track they chase employees like a bullfighter they would literally employees would at night take these things onto route 94 onto the highway after getting liquored up that was their after hours entertainment uh this place was wild and Gene, the founder of the park, wanted, wanted to give trophies out to people who had bested their, the, the, the best time on these goat cars. That's how fast these things were. Like, you can, you can beat your own record on these. Yeah, they, they would display it up a timer. And he wanted it to be where if you beat a certain time, like bikini oh. girls with champagne bottles would just come out of nowhere. That was his vision. <laughs> I mean, that's, there's always this, I mean, because some people may have, many, or, you know, our listeners may not have heard, seen the film, but, you know, so there's part of it, just every time I laugh about this, I almost want to just catch myself, because... It's not like, a lot, it's, it's a different type of laughter. The laughter of Action Park isn't a design joke. It's not a comedy yeah. routine. Yeah. It's the laughter of a brain having no other way to process what they're experiencing <laughs> or what they're he- hearing. <laughs> laughter is, is something that happens when you can't cry, you can't scream, you can't do anything mm-hmm. else. All you can do is laugh. And when you hear people, especially people who literally survived going to Action Park, laugh about it, I think it's really important to understand what kind of laughter yeah. it is. It's the laughter of narrowly escaping a saber-toothed tiger. It's not the laughter of a stand-up comedy routine. 
Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And actually, I think uh, it's a bit early, but I'm gonna we're gonna give listeners a bit of a break. And uh, we, while we're on the break, uh, we've got a, our last clip, uh, which basically I think is a good overview of everything that uh, Action Park was, and um, I think points us a little bit into the direction of this dark side that you were uh, talking about, both uh, uh, Chris and Seth. So um, let's go to a break, listen to this clip, and we'll be back in about a minute and a half. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. It's not really fair to ask the question, what was Action Park? Basic level, you can say it was a water slide park. But in truth, it was so much more than a water slide park. Action Park was the chaos summer park with very little oversight, too much alcohol, whistles blowing, people screaming, motors running. It was an energy, you know? You knew you were jumping into the fire pit. The most dangerous theme park of all time. There was a, a water slide that held one person that went in a, like in a flip. It looked like a, a bunch of kids built it because that's what it was. We'll be back with more Headbangers Ball coming from Action Park in Vernon, New Jersey, the biggest water park in the world. I think the very reason people were attracted to, to Action Park was because they could get hurt. That was the allure of it. I mean, who wants to sit on a Ferris wheel? It was a place where death was tolerated, where death was put right into the, the number situation. Every member of my family was injured in that park at some time or another. They called it Traction Park. That class was the, Action Park? Class Action Park, the lawyers called it. It starts out with people having fun, and by the end, crimes have been committed, cover-ups have happened, the story hasn't been told truthfully. To me, that's probably the worst thing of all. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with the co-directors of Class Action Park, Seth Porges and Chris Charles Scott. Uh, they've, uh, again, Class Action Park's the hit HBO Max doc. Uh, we've quoted him before, Jason Bailey, New York Times, when describing Action Park as a rule-free stew of dangerous rides, teen guests, teen employees, raging hormones, 80s-style machismo, and booze, which... There's a time when I wish that had been my youth. I can't actually claim that that's what my youth was like, but uh, still, there you go. Um, Seth, uh, as we've, you've already talked about, um, and that clip even shows us, I mean, we've got even Jimmy Kimmel talking about his family going to, uh, to Action Park. Uh, this all came with a downside, uh, didn't it? And yeah, yeah. Yeah, Action Park was a dangerous place, and everybody knew it was dangerous. Uh, the movie's called Class Action Park, which was one of several contemporaneous nicknames the park had by its regulars, by its employees. It was called Accident Park, it was called Traction Park, it was called Class Action Park, it was called Fracture Park, sometimes it was called Death Park. Uh, and these names came about because people knew what this place was. They knew this is a place you could actually get hurt. But what the owner, Gene, realized was that every time there was a newspaper headline about an injury, about how dangerous this place was, 
it didn't deter people. It drove them in. People just mm. came. They flooded in. And it became, you know, before social media, kids in school had what we'll call like the whisper network of the schoolyard. You guys are, there's gossip. Kids are talking about what's cool, what video games, what comic books, what TV shows, whatever it is they like. Action Park in the tri-state area became a staple of the schoolyard whisper network of kids mm-hmm. saying, holy cow, you have to see this place. They come back to school on Monday and they'd be showing off scars. They'd be showing off their injuries. It would be rite of passage and kids knew I have to go there myself and, and suffer my lumps. I have to go there myself and get injured or I'm a wimp. I'm a coward. I'm a something. And in New Jersey in the 1980s, there's nothing worse you could be. I think that came out very loud and clear (laughs) and I thought in extremely well. I mean, um, I mean, you get to this point, I had, I was wondering about this because, and what what was the source of it? I mean, I I just remember growing up with a lot of urban myths. Uh, The kid, the Mikey guy from the, died swallowing pop rocks, you know, while drinking Coke. Coke. So never drink Coke and eat pop rocks at the same time. Uh, You had all these urban myths, even allude to them in the film, uh, a lot of people thought this. The, even the um, the rides, some of the rides were myths that they didn't actually exist, and then they would come there and they were actually there and, and open. Um, it is uh, it is a, kind of an interesting thing that I guess, like you said, social media, phones, smartphones, things like that. We don't really you don't have the same sort of whisper network that you're talking about. It's, it's even more than that. I'm really glad you mentioned the, the urban legend of Mikey from Life Serial yeah. uh, eating Pop Rocks and Dringo, because I've actually mentioned that before in, yeah. in trying to explain Action Park to people, because kids in the 80s grew up without the ability to fact check things by just simply yeah. Googling them. All we had were these legends. And all of these legends made you feel like you were about one inch away from death at any given moment. <laughs> like if you touch yeah. the wrong pressure point, you could keel over and die. Yeah. If you eat the wrong candy and drink a Coke, your head will explode. And you're just overwhelmed with this. And, you, and it becomes so hard to differentiate real danger from perceived, uh, whispered about yeah. mythological danger. And Action Park existed in this space where it was really difficult for people to truly understand and internalize what it meant to be dangerous mm. yeah and i think for those or for our listeners i mean not that you need to know anything about my my youth but i remember getting to university college or university and uh you just for those of us who went to state high schools we used to trade these stories you know and i don't even know if they the ones that i knew from my school were true but you know the story of the kid putting the the uh the paper clip in the uh, the electrical outlet and shooting oh. a flame across the lab, yeah. and, you know, that, and kid, that kid's dead. We know about that kid. We, that yeah, exactly yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, that, this this was the stuff that was like everyday sort of yeah. occurrences. You know, um, what, what were urban myths to you and your friends at university and high school? These were true stories to people who went to Action Park, and people took their stories when they were relaying these stories to their yeah. friends, their families. The people are like, okay, that's an urban myth. We've had so many people in our in our in our direct messages, in our Facebook inboxes, in our email inboxes saying, Thank you, because no one believes me. Yeah. Like, oh wow. That's they amazing. think Action Park sounds like the boasts of your drunk jersey friend at a bar yeah, making exactly. stuff up. Exactly. And when you're a kid in the nineteen eighties, all of these myths seem somewhat detached. And you would give anything to just see them for your own eyes, be real. And Action Park was a place where you could see and experience things as outrageous as a kid's head blowing up from eating Pop Rocks. You know, this stuff would be right in front of you. And you'd come back with that story and you come back to school on Monday with a story. You're excited. And if you got the scars to prove it, that's firsthand, man. That's firsthand. 
Amazing. I mean, how many people died? Uh, um, depending on how you count it, five or six directly from the rides. There are numerous other deaths that sort of happened as a result of, you know, millions of people flooding into an area and sort yeah. of the accidents that occur. But I don't think the death count really captures the danger. Uh, um, the real I was going to ask think, how many yeah. were seriously injured. Yeah. That's the thing. It's literally impossible to tell because they just did not report injuries unless somebody was leaving in an ambulance. They did almost everything they could to minimize and cover up those numbers. But what we do know is that the Alpine slide alone, this is just one ride on any given busy weekend day would injure hundreds of people per day every single day. So this isn't like every once in a while somebody's getting injured or killed. Every single day, hundreds and hundreds of people are getting injured to the point where there's a really high percentage. And if you go to Action Park, you're going to walk away with a cut, a bruise, a scrape, mm. an injury, a scar. Yeah. And Chris, I mean, for some of our some of our listeners, most of our listeners actually are in the U.S., but uh, maybe explain what cl- the sort of the pun or what we're alluding to when we say class action. So the so many people were injured at the park, mm. and there were so many. Um, and uh, in, in reference to other amusement parks, um, the, the deaths there seemed a lot. That the tongue-in-cheek was a, that this was a, a place that, that invited um, lawsuits. Yeah. Um, and so class action is a type of uh, legal remedy in the United States that, uh, uh, that you can sue. Uh, a group of people can sue uh, an entity. And so class action... Uh, it's a play on the uh, on that lawsuit legal- park. It's legal lawsuit park. It's legal lawsuit. That way. Yeah, and, but, and it's a bit ironic since uh, I gather uh, that so few men were actually that were successful when it. Yeah, the owner was really good at making these problems disappear. He had more lawyers than you, bigger, better, fancier lawyers than you, and he would basically refuse to settle if you got injured. He would force you to go to trial. It's very expensive. And lawyers knew this guy won't settle, and many lawyers would refuse to take the case. Now, if you managed to take him to trial and win after this long, dragged-out thing where he would depose 100 different people mm-hmm. just to make the thing be as long and expensive as he could. If you manage the win, he would just simply refuse to pay unless you literally sent the U.S. Marshals to his door to collect the money. Yeah. And that happened on more than one occasion. We spoke to a former park manager whose job it was often to basically walk the marshals to the tip, U.S. Marshals to the ticket booth, collect a bunch of cash and hand it over to them. I actually, a lawyer reached out to us after the movie came out uh, who had a client who had to use the U.S. Marshals to collect this payout. And he told me this uh, funny story about how the marshals basically went from ticket booth to ticket booth, filling up a U.S. Marshals duffel bag full of cash. But when it was time to hand it over, the marshals couldn't hand it over because that duffel bag was U.S. Marshals property and they weren't allowed to hand it over. So this lawyer had to basically run around until he found a duffel bag at another store, stuff all this cash to it, and then drive it himself to the bank, hoping he made it before it closed. Oh, my goodness. It, it, it's, it's almost unbelievable. But yet you've, yeah. like you say, you've yeah. documented it. and. and- and the owner, I mean, this is a thing we, I don't think we've mentioned yet. The owner didn't really believe in the concept of actually, you know, having insurance. And he created his own fake insurance company yeah. based in the Cayman Islands in order to skirt insurance regulations, which is very telling. And also yeah. one reason he didn't really, uh, you know, he, he wanted to make it exhausting and difficult for people to yeah. collect payouts. Because if you didn't have valid insurance, it's going to be hard to actually pay off any yeah. significant settlements. Okay. Um, again, uh, highly recommend listeners watching this film. Um, I could go, I mean, I would pre- personally be happy to go on and on and talk about every ride and everything. It's an absolutely um, 
amazing um, uh, story. But um, maybe we talk a little bit about the project. Um, Seth, I, I see from your bio at Forbes, uh, I know it's one of the uh, uh, magazines that you write for. It says you're, you're interested in the intersection between technology, human experience, design, and culture. I'll take it. Uh, you'll take that, yeah? <laughs> I'll so take you, it. You, so you hit the sweet spot with this one, didn't you? I mean, what, was this subject, was this your idea? This project. Yeah, I, I'm between us. I was the one who'd been swimming in the action park pool for more than a decade, yeah. researching the topic. And Chris is the outsider who's able to bring kind of a fresh perspective to it. Yeah. I went to action park as a kid. I had oh, did these you? memories. I was, yeah, okay. I, I had these experiences and these memories that I had a really hard time squaring with my adult version of what reality was. That's amazing. And as I got older, I was very interested in, in fact-checking my memories and realized that there was really little out there in terms of journalism. There's really little out there in terms of actual research and reporting. There was just these myths. There were just these thinly sourced urban legends. And what we found, of course, was that they were pretty much all true. Um, and then some. That was just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Uh, because when it comes to Action Park, there's no reason to make anything up because you just spend one day there, you'll walk away with stories for a lifetime. Yeah. I mean, there's that one ride you show because uh, uh, it brought memories back for me that I had completely forgotten about uh, when I'd go to Schlitterbahn. I mean, there's nothing like Action Park, but where all the inner tubes were all like hitting on each other. And, you know, that yeah. can happen. You'd get, in a, you'd get in a section where I remember going under the water and having someone else's inner tube. Chaos, man. So, you know, it, was, chaos. it was chaos. Um, Chris, how did you become involved? Well, Seth and I, we've been friends for quite a while. And okay. uh, Seth was in Las Vegas of April of last year, and we just got together for a drink at one of my favorite places, uh, SDK Steakhouse, and we were just sitting at the bar talking, and he was telling me about this story, and I was like, someone has, someone has to have done a documentary about this. Yeah. Like, this is so intriguing that I would be surprised if, 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 if someone's already done it or, or in the process of doing it, and sure enough, uh, there wasn't, and... Um, we struck while the iron was hot. We were like, let's do it. Um, we had our Seth cameras running credit. a month later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Excellent. All the yeah. value in it. And he was just as gun ho as I was. And yeah. in a few short weeks, we were on the ground in New Jersey filming our documentary. Amazing. And Chris, when, so uh, what was this time period when you were filming? And did you just, just beat COVID in terms of getting, uh, getting everything yes. in the can? Yeah. We absolutely beat COVID. We began filming after Memorial Day of 2019. Okay. Um, and and so yes, we absolutely beat COVID. Okay. So you're in a you're in that sense very lucky. Um, yes. Yeah. We were lucky. We were and what lucky. other challenges did you have on this film? Well, it's. I mean, I'll, I'll jump in here, Chris. I think you know we 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 knew the outlines of the story, but a lot of it when you're making a documentary and you're interviewing real people, yeah. you never know how that's going to shake out. You never know yeah. what you know what people are going to say, what surprises, what revelations you'll have because mm -hmm. you know they have things that you can learn from. And I think we had numerous moments that totally caught us off guard and sort of changed what the movie was about to us in in many different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, the key one being, I think, of course, when we two key ones. One is when we spoke to the family members of a kid who was uh, killed at the park tragically yeah, and found yeah. out what happened, what the follow-up was, what actually happens when you suffer th these tragedies at Action Park and how are they made to go away? 
And the other was speaking to a former newspaper editor at the park who's in our movie who mm. uh, had swirled away in her attic for, you know, since the 90s, some secret audio recordings she had made with the owner of the park where he talks yeah. very openly about things like controlling the town's politicians. Yeah. I mean, it had a little bit of a, a bit of a Sopranos feel a little bit there for, for just, for a a just a little <laughs> just bit. A little <laughs> bit. <laughs> just a little bit. I'm not trying to... Yeah. Uh, Came it up a little bit, but yeah. Um, and you have some great, I mean, you, you've alluded to this uh, and, you know, before we get to the, to the Larson family, I mean, you have some great talking heads on this, uh, on this. I mean, I know we've got Alison Becker as an actress and Chris Gethard as a writer producer, but how'd you manage to, did you, were these friends of yours or did you, how'd you locate these people who had been on the. Well, yeah, I've been swimming. Sw- yeah, I'm sorry, Chris, you go Chris? on. Uh, this segues to me, uh, you asked what was one of the, the challenges in actually producing this documentary. This, to me, was one of the toughest challenges because we had a list of people that was a mile long yeah. who could, 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 could tell these stories of active parks and having to trim these people down. Um, I mean, we, we went in thinking that we were going to interview like 30-some-odd people um, but the cast that 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 we that we settled on, they were unbelievable. Um, mm. Their stories were factual, and 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 their tone and their mood and their presence was perfect. And so, um, Seth actually found the majority of the cast, and, and yeah. it was it was it was perfect casting. Yeah, I spent a lot of time uh, kind of swimming in the action park pool and meeting yeah. people and developing sources. And so I had just a really wide range of people to yeah. to kind of hook up with. And the thing is, you take the most boring person in the world. If they went to action park as a kid, you ask them to talk about action parks, suddenly they're alive. Suddenly they're animated. Suddenly they're having the time of their lives. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I mean, I just, on a personal note, Alison Becker, she reminds me of so much of someone that I know who's also from New Jersey and about the same age and was just at, yeah, it was, it yeah. was so spot on in, in some, in many ways. Uh, I mean, Chris, then what about the, um, the Larsons? This, this, this must've been quite difficult to get them to tell their story. What was important about the Larsons and before we even reached out to them in the canon of articles, that had been written about Action Park. Yeah. They mostly focus on the slapstick nature of the park. They mentioned the deaths, and they mentioned the names of the people who have died in the park. There was never any deeper investigation into those people, who they were, who their parents were, their personal stories. Uh, I found none in the whole archive of the Action Park uh, reporting. And so we felt that it was important if we were going to tell the, the, the full orb story of Action Park yeah. that we had to include um, the parents and had to get deeper and profile someone who'd actually died in the park. And so George Larson, the first yeah. kid who killed in the park, we took a shot at it. Let's try to find uh, his family. Yeah. And so I Googled George Larson and an obituary popped up. And it was George Larson Sr., the father. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in his obituary, it said he owned a construction and roofing company. I Googled that company and their company's page came up. Yeah. And I went to the contact us and I wrote, hey, I'm Chris Charles Scott. I'm doing a documentary on Action Park. We would like to include your story. 
like to talk with you about it. And in about 10 minutes, I get a phone call from an Orlando number. And it's Brian Larson, the brother of George Larson, and he's bawling his eyes out. And he said, we've been waiting for this email Amazing. or this phone call for the last 40 years. And um, nobody had ever, ever reached out to them, ever. Oh, to them. No yeah. one. No one. And I said, Brian, we would love to include you in telling your story. He goes, absolutely, absolutely. About 30 minutes after getting off the phone with Brian, I get another call from an Orlando number, and it's Esther Larson, the mom. Yeah. She goes, there's no way that I'm going to be excluded from this. She goes, I have not told my story. She goes, this is an opportunity for me to tell my story. Yeah. And, and in her advanced age, she got on a plane, like an early morning flight from Orlando to New Jersey. I mean, the journey was not easy. Yeah. And she got off the plane and just absolutely nailed her interview. And after the last scene, um, the, the, the shot that we shot in the cemetery, yeah. we're walking Esther back to her car and she turns to us and goes, I no longer feel like a victim. Amazing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm just uh, flabbergasted because, you know, uh, I know in, a, in a America, it seems like everything gets investigated. I mean, it's, it's just so amazing that, you know, as you say, five, maybe six deaths directly, um, high profile coverage in major newspapers, but never wants to, to reach out to the, uh, to the victims and their, and their families is absolutely uh, amazing. Yeah. A lot of reporting is people repeating other people's reporting. And yeah. uh, the reporting that had been initially out there was, was not accurate. Uh, you know, and, and yeah. a lot of it was a story that had been put out by the park in an attempt to minimize their culpability in the case. So they put out the story that George had been an employee at the park. Uh, and the real the message of that is that he should have known better. He was breaking rules. He was doing something he shouldn't have been done. And the fact was, he wasn't a park employee. He worked as a ski lift operator at the neighboring ski resort of the previous yeah. season. The park latched onto that said he was a park employee and used that not just to make it seem like it was his fault, but to never report his death to the state, claiming they didn't need to because he wasn't a member of the general public. Yeah. And that to me was astonishing, just astonishing. And if you look at really recent articles about Action Park, they still refer to him as a park employee. That has just entered the candidates, entered the mythology. Yeah, yeah. And it really makes you wonder, like, what else out there are we just sort of taking for granted? What's well, it's, I mean, you're, you're, you're a journalist. It's just, I guess it's just lazy journalism, isn't it? I mean, but then it I sure guess, is. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you should be fact, you know, mentally, you know, you should be fact checking everything that you that you come across just to to verify it. But um, well, what about other families? Did you try to? Um, I mean, I think the Larsons. Uh, I hate to put it this way, but to deliver the goods. I mean, uh, yeah, you know, we, we wanted to focus. I mean, this this is a movie. It, it's not about the detail of these deaths it's about yeah. the emotional experience it's about uh it's it's about the coexistence in the 1980s of immense joy and fun and freedom with tragedy and heartache and death and you know we thought it was much more much more prudent and meaningful to really focus on one family's story rather than make it jump around a lot yeah. we wanted to get to know them as much as we could and within the confines of a 90 minute film we felt like it was better to just focus on one story in this regard okay. Uh, and then there's one person we haven't really talked about, uh, the really not the elephant in the room, he's center stage, is uh, Gene Mulvihill, 
Uncle Gene, uh, yeah. Yeah, Uncle Gene, or the Brits over here would call the baddie, I think, but then comes across much more complicated than that. Uh, Seth or Chris, who wants to talk about uh, Gene Mulvihill? Give us a shot. Oh, you go, Chris. You go, Chris. Somebody I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tee this up for, for Seth. Yeah. Okay. This is, this is Seth's um, – this is why I love working with Seth and why our partnership really worked. There were aspects of me as an outsider – and I thought that this is what makes the story interesting. Yeah. And I wasn't really, um, I, really, I wasn't really interested in Gene Mobile Hill as a person. I was just interested in the part. And Seth was adamant about like, no, like, like Gene is this, it's the center of this story. Mm-hmm. And um, I deferred to Seth and he was exactly right. And the layer of Gene as a person, as a business person, um, as a family man, uh, he's so layered and so interesting. Um, and, and Seth is, um, he was, he was spot on with his assessment of Gene. Yeah. Gene to me is the human embodiment of action park and action park yeah. is the amusement park embodiment of Gene. I mean, they are the same entity. Uh, Gene was somebody who is this American archetype, you know, is yep. Charles Foster Kane. He's P.T. Mm. Barnum. He's Donald Trump. And they were friends. He's this American archetype of this guy who breaks whatever rule he wants and just gets away with it because why not? And he was somebody that most Americans had never heard of, despite uh, kind of rubbing shoulders with a lot of these more high profile white collar criminals and people of his ilk. And I thought he was such an interesting, interesting character because he's everything we as Americans and probably other people who aren't Americans when they look at America, both love and loathe about our country, this unbridled ambition, this uh, vision, this ability to make something out of nothing, but at the same time, uh, kind of not really caring too much about the consequences of their action and, and who they leave in their wake. And, you know, one of the jokes I like to make is that if this movie was released in another country, oftentimes movies, the names are changed for international release to something that might resonate with another country. I always joke that um, if this movie was released in another country, it'd probably be called America Park, uh, because I think that tells you everything there is about Action Park. <laughs> and uh, and I think, you know, Gene Mulvihill was was America. He was Wall Street in the 1970s and 80s like yeah. nobody I'd ever encountered. That's a, I think that's a very interesting point. Um, I mean, in terms of this, um, I mean, uh, it's a question I usually ask a guest. So you've kind of, you've already, in many ways, answered it. But uh, Seth, we'll start with you. I mean, all great docs are usually about something more than their subject. So this is much more than just about a an amusement park in northern New Jersey. Uh, but what what do you see this film really being all about? I see it about the um, eternal, constant struggle with us as individuals, us as society, between immediate gratification. And, and YOLO and fun and doing what you want and this sense of air quotes freedom which is a meaningless term that can mean whatever you want it to be versus yeah. common sense and safety and, uh, and, and communal ideals and Action Park was this tension in this Lord of the Flies deregulation era kind of writ large um, it's also a story about just what it was like to grow up in the 1980s we wanted to be real and honest about the good and the bad and the light and the dark of, of growing up in that era in a way that we don't think has really been captured the Generation X is often kind of views itself I think rightfully so as sort of a forgotten generation uh, they're not you know their existence is sort of in the margins and we wanted to kind of give them something that they can look back at and point to and say, this is who we are. 
Yeah, I think, well, as a Gen Xer, I, I want to thank you. <laughs> I, think you've, I think you've done it well, and I, uh, I don't feel vic- like I don't want to go victim on everyone, but yeah, I do, sometimes I do feel marginalized. I do feel like it's, uh, it's gone from the boomers straight to the millennials and now Generation Z, so, or, or will be eventually. Uh, Chris, I mean, I think another thing that comes out of this film, and I'm going to ask you, basically ask you the same question, but from a slightly different angle, is that I get a real sense of place in this film. And I, and I note from your background that you've got experience telling stories about places, uh, places people might maybe normally don't think of, like Shreveport and Louisiana and Waco, Texas. Um, so is this really an ode to New Jersey in a way? It's not just an ode to New Jersey. It's an ode to northern New Jersey. Okay, um, good point. Which is so different than the Jersey yeah. Shore or the Newark area. It is a place that you don't even think that is New Jersey. Uh, When you're standing on that super speed slide and you're looking out from that platform and you just see these rolling hills and mountains, it does not feel like New Jersey. Um, But what governed the town during uh, the Gene Mobile Hill years was very much so New Jersey. The political corruption, the, the, the under table deals, uh, the nepotism. Um, Northern New Jersey, while miles away from the, the urban scene of the lower New Jersey, was still very vulnerable to the politics and the way of, 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 of political life in New Jersey. And it was not immune to that. So this is very much so Vernon, New Jersey, Sussex County, Northern New Jersey, it is very much so a character in this place. Yeah. And I agree. And I think, well, I, I've been to Morristown. I don't know how far away that is from... Uh, it's not that far. 40 North minutes or so. 40 yeah. minutes. Okay, so it's still not quite... They, they would medevac. The yeah, a lot of the major... What Seth was about to say, a lot of the majorly injured people at Asher Park was medevac to the Morristown. To Morristown, yeah. Because right. there, weren't, there were no hospitals in Vernon. So you go to Morristown or you go across the state to Warwick, New York. Okay. And you've got the world's most dangerous uh, amusement park in a place that doesn't have hospitals or, or emergency rooms. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Uh, why wouldn't you? Um, so, I mean, besides all the accolades, hopefully uh, some monetary remuneration, uh, what do you ultimately hope to achieve with this film? Both of you, who wants to kick that one off? I'll go first here. Uh, I, w- I want this to be seen by people, and I'm happy with that. Yeah. And Chris? It's what is actually happening. It's what I wanted to happen. Like I said, uh, people watching this, but also people, I mean, in this very weird and uncertain time that we're living in, like to make people laugh and to look back at a time that they, they thought was very fun times. Um, I like to think that we added, you know, just a, a moment of laughter and 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 good reminiscing back on a time that that people really enjoyed and so in in these little crazy times i think that that was very valuable well i think you've um, personally i think you've 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 succeeded um i want to then ask uh, also finally what's i mean you're still basking in the glow of your success but uh what's next for you uh for the both of you uh, nothing i can talk about yet you know how that goes 
We got ideas. I got ideas. <laughs> Chris, can you talk about anything? I'm talking to people. Uh, yeah, talking. We got, we got, we got, we got meetings. Yeah. You, you're uh, starting to sound like Gene, Uncle Gene. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whatever. Uh, yeah. Everyone. Yeah. Uh. Well, within Action Park, Seth and I realized that we have a magic in 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 movie making together. Uh, the things that he brings to the table, the things that I bring to the table, just work. And so, yes, we are interested yeah. in, 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 in continuing to collaborate together. Yeah, I found my work wife here, you know? I'm still searching. Uh, the, uh, I mean, <laughs> the thing is, uh, if it's coming from me, but one thing I will say, I, I watch a lot of films, a lot of documentaries for this, uh, for this podcast. And um, one thing, one of a pet peeve of mine is often... Um, seen some excellent ones i won't you know but these should go a little too long maybe needed a little more editing i never sensed that with this this one you know i never yeah. I never looked at my watch and go oh it's it's, it's you know a tight 90 yeah it's a t- it is a not, it is not, a tight 90 i think not right? everything needs to be a eight-part series i'll just say yeah <laughs> so. yeah or there's some hour-long ones that would be perfect as hours you know they don't yeah. need to, you know even going hour 20s just maybe pushing it. Um, so, uh, but you know, I think you, uh, you've done a, you've done a great job. So thank you for that. Um, I hate to say, but I think we've come to the end of our time uh, together. It's, it's been a joy having you on the Factual America podcast. Really appreciate it. Uh, wish you all the uh, success with this film. May it stay number one for as long as possible. And, uh, and I wish you uh, best with all your uh, future endeavors. Um, so to, to wrap up, I want to thank uh, Seth Porges, uh, co-director, and Chris Charles Scott, co-directors of Class Action Park, HBO Max. And for those not in the U.S. or where HBO Max is available, look for it uh, on with HBO Max partners in your countries. Um, so uh, also want to give a shout out to This Is Distorted Studios in Leeds, England. And please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.